Well, good evening. Back again in Systematic Theology. It's been a while. We're up to session number 36 now, and we're on the portion called that I'm, that I'm calling Redeemed, part five of that. And in this portion, we're looking at the subject of redemption, which is the deliverance of God's people from the desperate situation that we were in due to sin. And we use the word redemption in a comprehensive way to refer to the work of God, the divine work. He intervened in our desperate situation when we could do nothing. Indeed, we didn't even have the will to do anything. We've seen that we were in a situation that we couldn't escape by our own efforts. We were born in sin, guilty of the sin of Adam right from the start, and then we became guilty of our own sins. To escape eternal punishment for our sins and to be brought to God as his people, we needed a redeemer. Now, redemption can be logically divided into two aspects. First, Christ accomplished redemption for us by what we refer to as his active obedience and his passive obedience. We've covered that previously. In his active obedience, Christ kept the law perfectly throughout his earthly walk. And this active obedience was necessary so that Christ's righteousness could be accounted to us in a legal transaction. Then Christ obeyed in his suffering, culminating in the cross, which took away the sins of his people. Those works of Christ's obedience are Christ's accomplishment of redemption. The other part of redemption, which we'll explore later, is the application of redemption to God's people. We left off last time by examining the office of Christ's high priesthood. In Christ's mediatorial kingdom, he occupies three offices, as we went over previously, the offices of prophet, priest, and king. We looked at his offices of prophet and king in previous studies. And in the last study, we started with the office of priest. And what we saw last time that we met is that the office of high priest is that of a representative, a representative. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, it defines the task of the high priest, where it says that he is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, which is the way the New American Standard translates it. Appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. We need a high priest who is both truly man and truly God. Our high priest needs to be truly human. As Gregory of Nazianzus phrased it, what he did not assume, he did not redeem. What he did not assume, he did not redeem. This requirement for our high priest to be truly human was foreshadowed in the Old Testament by the law of the kinsman redeemer. And you might remember that we went over the, the law of the kinsman redeemer. But our high priest must also be truly God. The blood that he shed as both the offerer and the offering itself must have infinite value. A mere man could not endure the wrath of God that his people were due in that short period of time on the cross. Only God has the divine strength needed to do the priestly work necessary for us. And that's a review of what we covered about the high priesthood of Christ previously, but there's more to say about Christ's representation of his sheep, and we're going to cover that tonight. There's a couple of vocabulary words that describe this work done by the high priest at the cross. Propitiation and expiation, and those are in your notes. Propitiation and expiation. These words describe the work 
that our high priest Christ accomplished at the cross. They describe the core of the work of the high priest. The work done, as Hebrews 2.17 says, in the service of God. And that's the first passage that I'm going to read this evening. If you'd like to follow along, I'll be in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. There's that word, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The very core of the work of the high priest is to deal with that great obstacle between man and God. The obstacle is sin. Man is sinful, and God is absolutely holy. In our last session, we saw that the high priest acts on behalf of men in relation to God. In the condition in which we were born, we were alienated from God. And our sin was an obstacle between us and God that we couldn't take away by our own efforts. Our sin was like this great wall between us and God that we couldn't tear down with our own hands. We need representation before God. We need one who can represent us in things pertaining to God. And the core of that work in things pertaining to God is to remove the obstacle or that wall of alienation between us and God, our sins. This is where that vocabulary word propitiation comes in. This word propitiation describes a core work of our great high priest Christ. So now we're going to look at the first of these vocabulary words, propitiation. What does it mean? The word propitiation means the turning away of God's just wrath from the sinner because his just wrath was poured out on the sinner's substitute, Christ. Because of God's attribute of perfect justice, sin must be punished. And the wrath of God towards sin is God's just response to sin. Propitiation is the satisfaction of God's justice for his people at the cross and the satisfaction of his just wrath against our sin. Once that obstacle of sin is removed, once God's perfect justice has been satisfied, once God's just wrath has been taken away from the sinner and poured out on our substitute, that alienation from God can be replaced with reconciliation. And as we saw in our last study, love was the motive or as the theologian Burkhoff put it, the moving cause of the atonement. The moving cause of the atonement being love. In his love, God provided the substitute, the propitiation for our sins. Now, there's several passages that we could go to to show us this. But I want to read from 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Love was the moving cause for God to provide propitiation for our sins by the sacrifice of Christ. God loved his people even before his people loved him while they were still enemies. As John says here, it's not that we loved God, but that he loved us. 
That love was the moving cause for the propitiation, the sacrifice, the atonement for our sins that enables that knocking down of the wall of sin that kept us from relationship with God. In his love, God provided the high priest, Christ. He's both the offerer of the sacrifice and also the offering, the sacrifice itself that we needed. In his love, God provided the means of satisfying his own wrath, taking away the obstacle between us and God. In his love, God provided the means of propitiation. And what's the result of this? We're going to see the result in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, which is where, where I'll go next. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For those who belong to Christ, our status before God has been changed by the work of the high priest. We were enemies of God, but once we're saved, we have peace with God. We were under the wrath of God, but because of Christ's work of propitiation, that wrath was poured out on our substitute. We didn't do any of this by our own work. We couldn't do anything. We were dependent on the perfect work of our high priest. Other religions depend to some degree on the work of man to bring propitiation. They depend on their own efforts. Other religions may recognize that we don't have favor with God, and they're going to try to bring their own works and their own sacrifices to bring about propitiation. But the truth is, as we saw in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's not that we have loved God. In the state in which we were born, we were enemies of God. It is that God loved us, and that is the moving cause of the atonement, the cause of God sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That was the first vocabulary word that describes the work of the high priest at the cross, propitiation. Now, the second vocabulary word that's there in your notes is expiation, expiation. Expiation means the release from our sins. Expiation means that there is full and complete remission of sins. And there's no more demands of God's justice either on us or Christ. The work of the cross is finished. It's complete. There are no more sacrifices for sin. When Christ went to the cross, he carried the sins of the people on his shoulders. The sins of both Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. As Christians, through the work of Christ, God has granted perfect forgiveness for us. Perfect forgiveness. The 17th century theologian Herman Witsius wrote of three dimensions or elements of what he called perfect forgiveness. Three elements of perfect forgiveness. Those elements are the taking away of sin, the transferring of sin, and the expiating of sin. We're going to look at each of those elements. First, the taking away of sin. When sin is taken away from the sinner, his guilt is taken away. What does guilt mean? What's the definition of guilt? Guilt means liability to punishment. 
Being guilty means we have done something worthy of punishment. And punishment is demanded for what we've done. Guilt means liability to punishment. Since the definition of guilt is being liable to punishment, when sin is taken away from the forgiven sinner and his guilt is taken away, he is no longer under liability to punishment. An Old Testament example of this taking away of sin by God's grace is when King David had sinned with Bathsheba and he was confronted by Nathan the prophet. When David was confronted, his heart turned and he repented and then Nathan pronounces this element of forgiveness toward David. And I'm going to read from this episode in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. 2 Samuel 12, 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The Lord put away the sin of David. Because of this, the Lord did not execute the punishment of death. David had sinned, but God forgave him and did not exact eternal punishment upon David. Remember, David still had to deal with temporal consequences for his sin. But he did not have to undergo eternal punishment. But perfect forgiveness requires more than just declaring that punishment is held back. We have sinned, and that sin has to be dealt with in some way. Or God is not really a God of perfect justice. And one place we can see this is in Exodus chapter 34, verse 7. Exodus 34, 7. In this passage... The Lord answers the request of Moses by showing Moses a portion of the glory of God passing by Moses as Moses is protected in the cleft of the rock. And as the Lord passes by, the Lord proclaims his own name and his attributes that are wrapped up in his name. Here's what the Lord proclaims about himself in Exodus 34, and I'm going to read verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God's own proclamation about himself, it presents us with kind of a dilemma. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin because he's abounding in steadfast love for his people. He forgives iniquity. He takes away sin. But on the other hand, he will by no means clear the guilty. The taking away of sin is not enough. The guilty can't simply be cleared like God pretends that nothing happened. Once sin is taken away, perfect forgiveness requires something to be done about that sin and guilt. And that's where the next element of perfect forgiveness comes in. That next element is the transferring of our sin. The transferring of our sin. When sin is transferred, the guilt for our sins is placed upon our substitute, Christ. Once that transfer of our sins takes place and Christ took those sins as our substitute, the guilt and liability to punishment for those sins was taken by Christ. At the cross, Christ took that 
punishment for his people, the punishment that had been due to us. Now, this transferring of sin from us to our substitute is foreshadowed in the Old Testament ceremonial law when the high priest on the Day of Atonement was to complete a ceremony involving two goats. One goat was to be a sin offering, and the other goat was to be what was called the Azazel goat or the scapegoat. If you'd like to follow along, I'll read from Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus 16, verses 7 to 10. This is where the Lord commands Moses concerning the two goats of the Day of Atonement. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. So on the Day of Atonement, we're presented with two goats. Aaron the high priest is commanded to cast lots over the two goats to see which goat will be the sin offering and which will be the Azazel goat, the goat that will be sent into the wilderness. And the point of using lots wasn't to leave the choice to chance, but to take the decision out of the hands of man. God was to make the determination on how sin was to be transferred and then removed. And here's what happened to the goat that was the sin offering. I'm going to read further on in verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. The goat that God chose by Lot to be the sin offering was a type of Christ. This is a picture of the sins of God's people being transferred to the substitute, Christ. The blood of the goat was then shed, a picture of Christ shedding his blood for our sins. The wrath of God against our sins was satisfied at the cross because the sins of God's people were transferred to Christ. Christ carried those sins to the cross and bore the punishment for those sins there at the cross. But now we have another picture presented to us. And that is the picture of what happens to the other goat, the live goat, the Azazel goat. And I'm going to move forward to verses 21 and 22. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess Confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. The high priest was to lay both hands on the head of the Azazel goat and confess the iniquities, transgressions, and sins of God's people. The destiny of the sins of God's people is now tied to the destiny of this Azazel goat. Once this picture of the transfer of sin was complete, the Azazel goat was driven into the wilderness never to be seen again. As the passage says, 
In this ceremonial picture, the Azazel goat bears the iniquities of God's people on itself to a remote area. While the first goat, the sin offering, is a type of the person of Christ as our substitute, the second goat, the Azazel goat, is a type of the effect of the work of Christ, the effect of the work of Christ. Because our sins are paid for by our substitute, all of our sins are completely wiped away. Our sins are sent away, never to be judged again, never to be remembered, never to be seen again. This is a picture of the other vocabulary word that we're looking at, the word expiation. When sin is expiated, the guilt for our sins that was transferred to Christ is canceled completely because the punishment due for those sins was carried out on Christ. This element of perfect forgiveness, expiation, means that since our sins were removed from us, then transferred to our substitute, Christ, then finally Christ bore the punishment for our sins, God's perfect justice cannot demand any more from us and cannot inflict anything more. The result of the expiation of our sins and the completion of perfect forgiveness is shown in in where I'm going to go next, and that's Hebrews chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. In this section, there's a comparison of the covenant of Moses with the new covenant and how the new covenant makes the covenant of Moses obsolete. Here, in verses 11 and 12, we see how the work of Christ changes everything. Hebrews 8, beginning in verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. I will remember their sins no more. Under the covenant of Moses, the sins of the people were remembered year after year on the day of atonement. But now God does not remember our sins against us. Like the Azazel goat, our sins are driven away, never to be seen or remembered again. Once again, here are the elements of perfect forgiveness. Our sins are taken from us and forgiven We're no longer under God's wrath. Our sins are transferred to our substitute, Christ, who dealt with our sins completely at the cross. The wrath of God was fully satisfied by being poured out on his son there at the cross. Then there's the third element of perfect forgiveness, expiation. Our sins are wiped out and cannot be judged any longer. Our sins were already judged in Christ at the cross. Our sins are taken far away never to be remembered against us. That's the meaning of expiation. All three of these elements of perfect forgiveness are applied to those who are saved. The demands of perfect justice are satisfied for those who belong to Christ by perfect forgiveness. The degree of the blessing of perfect forgiveness is shown in Psalm 103, which is where I'm going to be next. Psalm 103. In this psalm, David blesses the Lord as he meditates on how the Lord benefits his people. 
He cries out in the beginning of the psalm, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Then David begins to remind us of these benefits. I'll read from Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I like what Spurgeon preached about this passage, and here's a portion of what he preached, and I'll quote. Now God has taken his people's sins away from them to an infinite distance, that is to say, there is no fear that their sins should ever return to them. They are gone, 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 gone completely. I do not know how it is, but some of our friends of a certain school of theology believe that after men are pardoned, they may yet go to hell. I will not quarrel with them about that doctrine. If it gives them any comfort, they're welcome to it. It does not seem worthy to me, worthy of a God or even of a man. Poor is that pardon, which may yet be followed by eternal torment. If God has pardoned his people, surely no fresh proceedings can be opened, no subsequent indictment preferred against them. Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Then the other passage I want to point to is in Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 to 20. Here by the Holy Spirit, the prophet looks to the day when expiation will be accomplished at the cross for God's people. The passage speaks of the moving cause of the atonement, God's steadfast love for his people. Then it speaks of the effect of the atonement, that our sins are completely removed. Micah chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You may have heard accounts of the hunt for the sunken ship Titanic. It took until 1985 to locate the wreck of the Titanic. At the bottom of the ocean, 12,000 feet down. Modern technology was needed for this, since it's like saying, you know, looking for a needle in a haystack. The metaphor of casting our sins into the depths of the sea shows how, in Spurgeon's words, our sins will never return to us. They are gone, 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 gone completely. Our sins were taken from us. They were transferred to Christ. Then, at the cross, our sins were expiated, which is a full and complete remission of sins. The priesthood of Christ was really a lifelong process while he walked the earth, then went to the cross. As our great high priest, Christ needed to be perfectly obedient to the law, gaining righteousness that could then be accounted to his people, then taking the sins of his people at the cross. 
Psalm 24 tells us of the qualifications needed to stand before the Lord in a state of blessing. These are qualifications that we can't meet by our own efforts. And I'll read from Psalm 24, verses 3 to 5. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. You know, we've looked before in past sessions at this imagery, this imagery of the mountain of the Lord as the meeting place between God and man. Who can ascend that mountain? Who can stand in God's holy place? Here's the requirements. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. This person in God's blessed presence must not lift up his soul to what is false. This person who stands in God's presence on his holy hill, this meeting place between God and man, must be without sin, with clean hands, and he must also be righteous with a pure heart, having lived a righteous life. If we were not in Christ, this would be cause for panic. But our champion, Christ, is our great high priest, our new federal head. He meets both qualifications. He never sinned. He has clean hands. He lived a perfect life, so he has a pure and righteous heart. Christ is the one who can ascend the holy hill of the Lord. Only Christ and those who are in Christ, that's us, can ascend God's holy hill because we're in Christ, the one with the qualifications. Now that we've defined these two important terms of Christ's atonement, propitiation and expiation, and we've looked at the benefit of perfect forgiveness of our sin, we can move on to looking at the ongoing work of Christ as high priest. The ongoing work of Christ as high priest. We can say that the work of Christ on our behalf as high priest is assigned to two time frames. There's the work that Christ has already accomplished during his earthly walk, culminating at the cross. Then there's another time frame where there's an ongoing but different work as high priest. The work of offering for sin was completely finished at the cross. There's no more offering. The Old Testament priests, they had to keep offering over and over again. Their work was never finished. There was never enough animal blood shed. Hebrews chapter 10 boldly proclaims the difference between the ineffective animal sacrifices that never ended and the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ that is never to be repeated and does not need to be repeated. And I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There are no more sacrifices for sin. That part of the priestly work of Christ is done. It needs no repetition, and it is not to be repeated. One of the warnings to the Hebrew Christians in the book of Hebrews 
is against abandoning faith in that one sacrifice and going back to the system of animal sacrifices. And that warning is a a few verses later. In Hebrews, we're still in chapter 10, verses 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The Hebrew Christians were in danger of having received the truth, then sinning by deliberately committing apostasy, by rejecting the truth of the finished priestly sacrifice of Christ. The warning says that if they reject the finished priestly sacrifice of Christ, there was no longer a sacrifice for sins. Animal sacrifices would not atone for their sins. All that would be left is the expectation of judgment for their sins. Such a severe warning to the Hebrews should convince us of the importance of the doctrine that the portion of Christ's priestly work that involves his being the offering and the offerer, that's finished. But Christ is still engaged in priestly work before the Father in heaven. This is a priestly work of intercession on our behalf. Intercession on our behalf. I'm going to read next from Hebrews chapter 9, if you'd like to follow along. In this passage, the earthly temple and animal blood are called copies of the heavenly things, with the heavenly things being better. Hebrews 9, starting in verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. To appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The earthly temple, the animal sacrifices were copies and inferior copies that could not actually win redemption for us. They were types. They were shadows. They were meant to point to the better sacrifice yet to come. And Christ has finished once and for all that superior sacrifice. Now he has entered into heaven itself, appearing in the presence of God on our behalf. As our perfect high priest, he not only represented us on earth, but even now he represents us in heaven before the Father. But while the aspect of Christ's work as high priest is offerer of the sacrifice and the sacrifice itself that was finished at the cross, there's another aspect of Christ's office of high priest that is ongoing today. That ongoing high priestly work is that Christ represents his people in heaven. He represents us in heaven. Why does Christ still need to represent us in heaven as priest? It's not to gain more merit for us, since the work that Christ did on earth, that's finished. Our sins have been atoned for, and Christ's active obedience, his perfect life, it's been credited to us us as righteousness. Christ has already gained this merit to be credited to us. The reason for the ongoing priestly representation of Christ before the Father is that we still sin. 
The devil accuses us. Our own conscience accuses us. The law accuses us. We need the ongoing forgiveness of Christ's work. We need Christ to hold forth before the Father his finished work. The Apostle John writes of this ongoing work of Christ in heaven before the Father in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Here, John first encourages us to refrain from sin. But then, of course, since we still do sin, John tells us of the remedy. 1 John chapter 2, I'll begin in verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John gives the flock an imperative that they shun sin and seek righteousness. But of course, as long as we're in this world, we still do sin. John gives the remedy for when we do sin. And it's the twofold intercession of Christ. Verse 2 speaks of the propitiation for our sins that Christ has already completed at the cross. With the words, it is finished, the wrath of God is propitiated, meaning that the wrath of God is turned away from us because Christ, as our high priest, took that wrath for us. Then in verse 1, John speaks of the ongoing work of Christ, our high priest, in heaven today at the right hand of the Father. He is our advocate. In the Greek, that's parakletos, the one who appears on our behalf before the Father. The one who appears on our behalf before the Father. What is this intercession? The theologian Gerhardus Voss phrases the central feature of Christ's intercession like this, and I'll quote, This intercession is, as it were, only a continuation of the sacrifice. As the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world, so by this presentation it remains slain until the end consummation of the ages with ever-atoning sacrificial blood. Christ appears before the Father on our behalf as our continuing high priest, testifying of his own completed sacrifice that has already addressed our sin. This appearing of Christ on our behalf by presenting himself as the lamb slain for our sins is shown symbolically in the book of Revelation. And we're going to look next at Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. And here, John is witnessing the one seated on the throne, holding the scroll with seven seals. An angel proclaims a question. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? At first, no one could respond to the angel by stepping forward, and John begins to weep because no one was worthy. But then, one steps forward. The only one in heaven, earth, or under the earth who is worthy. When there was no other hope, the lion of the tribe of Judah steps forward. But then Christ is also described in another way. I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. 
And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. A lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. I want to call our attention to how Christ is symbolically portrayed in the vision. He is a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And that's unusual. A slain lamb doesn't just get up and stand. But Christ was slain and he died and then he was resurrected and he lives. But the symbolic portrayal here says, as though it had been slain. The lamb, Christ, is symbolically shown as visibly reminding all in heaven that he had been slain with the atoning effects of that sacrifice still in force. In other words, the cross is not just ancient history, no longer remembered because it was just a long time ago. Often, we look at long ago historical events, and it's not really relevant to our lives here and now. It's just so much history. Not so in heaven with the sacrifice of Christ. He is right now, at this moment, in heaven, before the Father, standing as though he had been slain. The scars of his crucifixion are still on his body. The atonement is held in constant remembrance before the throne, as though it had just happened. The atonement is not ancient, faded history in heaven. Christ's intercession for us involves the active, ongoing remembrance in heaven of the cross. Christ's self-presentation in heaven as the one who was slain brings the atonement into constant, ongoing remembrance. When we sin, Christ presents himself as already slain for that sin and as risen, which proves that the Father accepted the atonement. This memory of satisfaction for our sins is always and continually present before the throne. This symbolic vision and revelation of Christ as a lamb standing as though it had been slain shows this continuing, ever-present self-presentation of Christ as the one who has effectively atoned for our sins. As our high priest, Christ continues interceding for us, presenting his own atonement on our behalf. So when we sin, because there's not one of us who does not sin, Christ appears on our behalf as our high priest interceding for us, his self-presentation in heaven before the throne as the lamb who was slain brings constant remembrance of the atonement as a present power that cleanses us. And there's another aspect of Christ's intercession for us, and that's the aspect of Christ receiving our prayers, perfecting our prayer, and presenting our prayers in heaven. Christ, in his high priestly intercession, sanctifies our spiritual service to the kingdom. Our kingdom service is offered to a holy God, but that our service is far from perfect. The scripture calls our kingdom service, including prayer, spiritual sacrifices. Here's how Peter speaks of our spiritual sacrifices being sanctified by the priestly intercession of Christ. And I'll read from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. 
1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. This is how Peter speaks of our spiritual sacrifices being sanctified by that intercession of Christ. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Spirit, we're offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Our prayers fall short of perfection. Our kingdom service falls short of perfection. But Peter says here that as we offer these spiritual sacrifices, they are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Our imperfect prayers, kingdom service, these spiritual sacrifices, imperfect as they are, are acceptable to a perfect and holy God through Jesus Christ, the high priest who intercedes for us. And as high priest, Christ also prays for us. You know what? We may at times neglect our own prayer lives, but Christ as high priest, he's always praying for us. We need protection against temptation and spiritual danger. We have spiritual needs. We need power that our faith is not lessened but made greater. We need the prayer of Christ that we will be victorious in the end. Let's turn next to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We'll read verses 31 to 34. Now in this passage, Paul is giving us comfort. He's assuring us that once we are saved... Christ didn't just leave us, and now our perseverance in the faith, well, it's it's our own responsibility now. We're, We're on our own. If we are concerned that we are in any sense on our own in the Christian life, here's how Paul answers that. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's look at the benefits that Paul lists, which God grants to us throughout our Christian lives. Paul says that since God did not spare his own son, then of course he will also supply us graciously with all things. What are these all things that we need so much? We need protection from the accusations of Satan in our own conscience. So Paul asks a question that answers itself. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It's God who justifies. Paul then answers our tender conscience when we fear condemnation. Who is to condemn? Paul answers that Christ died and was resurrected, proving that those who trust in him are not condemned. But then Paul goes further. After pointing to these events in history, Christ's death and resurrection, Paul points to Christ's current work as high priest, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul points to the finished work of Christ, then to how Christ is even now representing us in heaven. Because of these things, in verse 35, Paul can boldly say that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We have need for perseverance in the faith, and because of the high priesthood of Christ, his finished work at the cross, and his intercession on our behalf in heaven, we can be assured of perseverance. The book of Hebrews also comforts us with the knowledge that Christ is even now interceding for us in heaven. We're going to turn next to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Hebrews 7, 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This passage is, is in a section here where Paul, who I believe is the author of Hebrews, is making the case that the high priesthood of Christ is better than the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. One of the reasons that the Old Testament high priests died and others had to take over to replace them. There was no real continuity. Instead, there was a chain of high priests from one generation to the next. But since Christ is risen and no longer subject to death, verse 25 says that he always lives to make intercession for us. Because the high priesthood of Christ has real continuity and is not interrupted by death, Christ is able to save to the uttermost. Christ represents us in his intercession for us in a way that is continuous. It does not stop short of completion. Christ intercedes for us in protecting us from the accusations of Satan protecting us from the accusations of our conscience. Christ intercedes for us in displaying his own sacrifice before the throne as the basis for our forgiveness of sins. Christ intercedes for us in asking the Father for every spiritual blessing associated with salvation to be applied to us. Finally, Christ intercedes for us in ensuring our perseverance in the faith until we are brought into his presence forever. As Hebrews 7.25 says, he is able to save us to the uttermost because he always lives to make intercession for us. Here's a quote from the 17th century Puritan John Flavel on Christ's intercession for us, and I'll quote, It is his name that gives our prayers their acceptance because the Father can deny him nothing. Therefore, your prayers are not denied. Does God condescend to hear you in the day of trouble? Does he convince you by your own experience that your prayers have power with God and do prevail? Oh, see how much you owe to your dear Lord Jesus Christ for this high and glorious privilege. 
with Christ being such an appropriate mediator for us, it's strange that there's many who seek out other mediators. An example of those who seek out other mediators is the Roman Catholic Church. Why should we never seek out another mediator other than our high priest, Jesus? To close out this section of systematic theology on the high priesthood of Christ, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Here we're going to see a strong affirmation of the uniqueness of Christ as our mediator. I'm going to read from 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Just as there is only one God, there is only one mediator between God and man. In studying about Christ's office as priest, we've looked at our need for a high priest, the qualifications of a high priest, the work of the high priest, and why our perfect high priest, our perfect mediator, must be truly God and truly man. Only one person meets these requirements. As verse 5 says, there is one mediator between God and men, a man, Christ Jesus. Angels can't mediate between God and man. Dead saints can't mediate between God and man. Mary cannot mediate between God and man. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Once again, why should we never seek another mediator other than Christ? The reform document, the Belgic Confession, answers this question. I'll quote from the Belgic Confession on this question. For there is no creature, either in heaven or on earth, who loves us more than Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, yet made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a man and of a servant for us, and was made like unto his brethren in all things. If then we should seek for another mediator, who, who would be well affected toward us? Whom could we find who loved us more than he? who laid down his life for us even when we were his enemies. And if we seek for one who has power and majesty, who is there that has so much of both as he who sits at the right hand of his father and who has all power in heaven and on earth? Belgian Confession is so eloquent when describing why we should not and cannot seek a mediator in Mary or the Roman Catholic saints or any other mediator. Christ loves us more than any creature could. For there is no creature either in heaven and earth who loves us more than Jesus Christ. And also, only Christ has the power and majesty to represent us before the Father. And if we seek for one who has power and majesty, who is there that has so much of both as he who sits at the right hand of his Father and who has all power in heaven and on earth? The intercession of Christ for his sheep is infallible. It cannot fail. The Father always hears the Son. Our high priest is even now, at this minute, interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. We finish the section now on the accomplishment of redemption. And where we're going to be headed next is the application of redemption, or what happens 
when an individual elected by God in eternity is actually saved. We'll be going into that next. Thank you so much for coming tonight.